Thank you. Well, Chris and I did have a bit of a tussle because I'm going to be going through chapter 10 to 12, but we both wanted to do 13 because it's very dramatic. And (laughs) so anyway, he won the tussle, obviously. (laughs) But uh, it's it's really fantastic to be reading, uh, uh, to be talking through the first uh, few chapters in this last session. So as you've all been looking at the the key themes throughout Nehemiah are these themes of rebuilding. So rebuilding the wall, uh, the revival, so the spiritual revival of the people. And then this week we actually look at the restoration. And so here, what's so wonderful about Nehemiah alongside Ezra is that we have the very practical and the physical rebuilding of the city uh, with the spiritual consolidation. And today, I think we can look at this in terms of reviving the law and the practices and the institutions of the nation uh, alongside um, the spiritual dimension of putting that new covenant into practice. Uh, and this turns out to be a bit of a, a challenge, as uh, not to give any spoilers, Chris, for chapter 13. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, I, let's go to chapter 10. So when we go to chapter 10, you'll remember at the end of chapter 9. So right at the end of chapter 9, um, the people, remember, they've read the law, they've, they'd, they're all confess their sins and they're in this very, uh, I guess, emotional state, right? They're, they're, they're brokenhearted, they, they know where they are as sinners and they don't want to leave it there, okay? So they don't want to just have this moment of revival and then just let it pass. They want to hold on to this, they want to lock it in. So right at the end of chapter 9 in verse 38, they say, and because of all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our leaders our Levites and our priests seal it. And then in chapter 10 at the start, it goes through the names of all the priests who are head of households who seal these words of the covenant. And then it goes through the written words of the covenant. And the first one uh, of these um, is the idea that they're going to commit themselves to, to writing a formal law. So it says in chapter 10, verse 29, they bound themselves with an oath to obey the law of God, uh, to follow carefully commands, laws and regulations. So that was your notes. The actual verse itself, though, um, says that they bound themselves, they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. And I think that's a, an important point there. So when they said a curse, they didn't literally curse themselves. They entered into the fact of punishment, right? The, the fact that when we enter into this law, we want this to be binding. And to make it binding, because people are, are sinners and human nature means as soon as there's a law, we're going to break it. Uh, so if we add a punishment onto it, people might hold on to it. And I find this absolutely... Um, you know, it's very interesting because I'm somebody who actually studies lawmaking and institution making and reforms. And, you know, I've spent the last few years, you know, studying in depth the end of the World War, World War One, World War II. Uh, and these are moments of enormous lawmaking and institution building. And why is this, right? This is because after periods of immense suffering and trauma, uh, the, the the lawmakers and, and the global leaders, they say never again, you know, after Rwandan genocide, never again, never on our watch, this isn't going to happen. But we don't trust that the next generation will remember because they didn't experience the trauma, right? They, they didn't know captivity. They didn't know what it was like to not have a nation. So 
in order to, to lock in our gains, to solidify this and to cement this, we are going to write laws and we're going to build institutions. And in a sense, we're going to future-proof the nation. And this is very much what we're seeing through the um, what, what's happening in these verses. Uh, so they're binding themselves. And, and I think it's because of this element that they even bound themselves to a punishment that we see how zealous Nehemiah becomes when the people actually um, digress from the law. Uh, and so I think there's two different aspects of the covenant as we go through them. There's those that govern the daily practices and behaviour of the people. And then there are those that pertain to um, the temple uh, and the, I guess the centrality of the spirituality um, uh, in, the, in the laws. So the first, uh, the next one of these laws is no more mixed marriages. Okay, so this is a theme that keeps coming up again and again. So in their new covenant, they actually say, we're going to stop intermarrying. Okay, the, the nation of Israel is set apart. They're a holy nation. They're going back to the, um, the covenant um, of their, their uh, forefathers in Deuteronomy. It's in seven, chapter 7, verse 6. It says, for you are a holy people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his prized possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And with this incredible promise, the Israelites were off into marrying. And this wasn't just a, a you know, a biracial kind of problem, otherwise we would have had some issues. This, this wasn't about necessarily race or they weren't being discriminatory. They were protecting who they were. And this applies to us, right? So when we come to the New Testament, speaking to the church, um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we now, as the church, are bound, in a sense, to this same um, principle that we're not, um, you know, intermarrying in the sense of, you know, young people marry a Christian because your heart will be taken off and, and, you know, tempted by idols and everything else that comes uh, with the, the non-Christian way of life. So this was the other aspect of it. Uh, also, they were bound to uphold the Sabbath. So this was not just a command of God, but this was also given for the benefit of the people and to consolidate the land every seventh year by not farming. So um, we'll look at this again in just a second. But the second set of regulations uh, were around reinstating provision for the temple. Uh, so they were required to pay the annual temple tax so that the temple duties were not neglected. So this is very important. This is part of the covenant, maintain the temple duties. Lots, lots were cast for each tribe to provide wood for the temple sacrifices. So the wood, the fire will just keep burning continuously. So they needed a lot of wood. And so this had to be provided for. Uh, the giving of the first fruits was reinstated and the giving of the firstborn to the Lord was reinstated. So again, consecrating the firstborn child to the Lord. These were all practices of their forefathers that obviously they've, they've forgotten. You know, they've, they've stopped walking in these ways and they need to be reinstated um, and reinstituted. And then an emphasis on the best of the best, a priority of excellence to the Lord. So this again is returning to the original law where tithing is not just a duty. It's not just I'm going to give my 10% and then I've, I've done my duty. I can go happily spend my 90%. No, it's actually, it says in Leviticus um, that the tithe belongs to the Lord and it is holy to the Lord. So this is an act of worship. And so they're reinstating giving as, 
you know, the, as a practice, as a way that they live out their faith. Uh, and then uh, finally the Levites were given a tenth of everything um, produced. So what we have here is after this outpouring of the Spirit and this revival and this emotional response to God, they're locking in these laws that are saying, actually, we're now going to translate what is in our hearts and what the law has told us from our forefathers, we're going to actually enter into this new covenant and we're, we're going to bind ourselves to it. Um, and I guess it's just really important to, to point out right at the end of that chapter, verse 37, um, the last sentence is, we will not neglect the house of our God. Right, and, and really this is so emphasised that this covenant was that the house of God was something that we valorise, something that we give of our own labour, our own material goods, but it's also this, this heart commitment that we translate into the covenant. Um, all right, the next part of your notes looks at the value of consolidation and here we're looking at the restoration of the principle of Sabbath and rest. Uh, and so this, again, looking at both the spiritual dimensions, but also the practical dimensions um, of this. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 11, it says, But the seventh year you shall let your land rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Uh, and so here they're reinstating these practices and it's very interesting that modern farming techniques actually use a lot of these practices of allowing the ground, you know, the micronutrients to build up uh, and um, to, to restore um, the, the land. And there's a number of principles in here that are also being given back in terms of the way that the nation is called to live their lives. So rest is a big part of it. It's this fact that when you're resting, you're not doing nothing. You're actually doing something. <laughs> you know, we have um, a very big garden and I love winter absolutely it's so peaceful it's that time of year where things just stop growing and you you know have to stop <laughs> working so hard uh, and it's really interesting you know knowing that during it was kind of scary the first time we went through this winter you know everything just looks dead in the garden but you know it's through this time that all of these plants are recovering the, themselves and you know spring comes and you actually see which plants have are flourishing and fruiting and which plants um have died and need to be pulled out and so on. So these are principles that are brought back into their daily life. And, and we can think about how they've been living, you know, for the past hundred plus years when they've been out of sync uh, with their practices. So um, this brings rest and renewed energy. Um, so renewal is really important if they're going to, and, and think, I think this is really important to remember that Nehemiah was an administrator. Uh, he was a spiritual man. He was a godly man, but he was an administrator. Um, he was a governor, not a priest. And he's actually setting the nation up for strength and vitality, right? So he's looking at this. He's like, what do we need to succeed as a nation? Um, and we'll get to this later where he's like, well, one, we need incredible priests, but we need people to service the temple. We need our gatekeepers. We need our people who are going to protect um, and uphold the land. We need people to, who are going to do the distribution. If we are going to be not just a good church, but we are going to be a nation, all right? we are a people of God. And this is where I think Nehemiah is so interesting for us, is that this isn't just rebuilding the temple, which is fantastic because this is symbolic of God's centrality, but this is the people of God, right? This is all of us. This is the kingdom of God. And 
this is a nation vision that Nehemiah has, that there's this spiritual renewal, not just of the priests and the priestly duties. This is a spiritual renewal of the people of God. And this, I think, is where the revival really happens and how practical he was to institutionalise these provisions that meant that even in their agricultural practices and their conduct of business and even in their daily lives of reinstituting the Sabbath, that these were people who were going to be effective, they were going to be, you know, strong, they were going to be prepared for the work ahead of them, that as a nation they would be viable and strong. So I think that these are really principles that we can draw out of this and to remember in our society that we don't Sabbath. You know, it's a bit of a trendy thing. I was talking to someone about this recently of, you know, everyone, um, you know, now in Canberra, we're talking about, you know, having our Sabbath. It's so crucial that we learn that rest is not doing nothing. It's doing something that that's very important. So um, consolidation. And it's important to consolidate after the fact. I had a... uh, very interesting week actually in um, Kathmandu in Nepal and if any of you have ever been to Nepal or know anything about its history, they went through after about 250 years of a monarchy uh, the the Communist Party said why not have a revolution and get rid of the monarchy and they did, they were successful (laughs) and they overthrew the monarchy and they institutionalised a democracy a really new concept for them and uh, uh, so what's the first thing they do is they write a new constitution. (laughs) So they say, well, look, we've abolished this system of oppression and tyranny and we're not really happy with it. Let's write some laws and let's get some principles and values and let's write them down and let's solidify everything that we've just fought for, all these lives that were lost and let's, you know, get these concrete uh, gains. Uh, And it was really interesting talking to people there because I'd ask them, what do you think about democracy? And... uh, they kind of didn't know what to say because they'd lost so much in the war and they'd be like, well, uh, you know, it's it's just really hard after we had something for 250 years to just not have anything now. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, there was an, my taxi driver said, I hate it, just hate democracy, it's terrible. You know, instead of one ty- you know, tyrannical king who's corrupt, we've now got a hundred of them and they just keep changing. <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, Israel, in a sense, we can see, you know, in, in Nepal where a lot of people have gone back to their old practices and, and back to how it was in the bad days. Of um, we, we start to see this behaviour creep up in Israel, but they have have something more, right? One, they have this spiritual leadership of Nehemiah who says, no, 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 we're going to make sure that this governance is correct and that the values that we've instituted hold. Um, But also this knowledge that we have this heritage that's a God-given law and we're going to hold on to it. And so then this brings us to um, chapters 11 and 12. There's different parts to this. So I, I think chapter 11 is really interesting because this is where we see the repopulation of Jerusalem and outside Jerusalem. And this kind of brings us back to the fact that Israel as a nation needs to be a strong nation. And to be a strong nation, it needs to have people. It needs to have a good population. Uh, this is a very practical uh, kind of uh, vision that he has. And so there's this interweaving that um, between the spiritual and the practical needs of the nation to say that if you know we're going to uphold um, God's precepts um, and we also need to engage in you know this this nation building of, of bringing in um, the services across. Uh, and so not only do they tithe their population, so they cast lots and one out of ten are called to actually live in the city of Jerusalem and and the rest set themselves up in in towns outside Jerusalem. 
But they're actually assigned functions um, for service and, and oversight and for guarding the city, for distribution and so on. <clears throat> so this is, I guess, the strengthening. This is the, the part now where the city's not just being rebuilt, but it's, it's in itself being consolidated and strengthened. And then we now turn to chapter 12. And I think I was explaining this to Chris in the car. I think this is really the linchpin here of this new covenant. Because, you know, what I was saying, you know, with Nepal, for example, they, they write a new constitution and they've got the laws and this is wonderful. But, you know, they're eight years out of the new constitution and they're back to everything they were doing before. You know, the discrimination's there, the corruption's there, the malpractice is there. And why is that? It's because the law by itself is very dry, right? But there's got to be a change of heart. And it's not just that moment, that emotional response. That change of heart is actually your behaviour and, and your, spirit, your spiritual life as a whole has that continuity and it has that sustainability that you can, you know, keep it going. And, and this is what they're really struggling with. And so we have two parts of the covenant because we have the law written but we have this moment of purification and this moment of consecration and dedication that takes place um, in chapter 12. So in chapter 12, we have the dedication of the wall, of the temple, of the, the priests, of the, the people. And um, this is an enormous celebration. I mean, this chapter goes into great detail to describe, you know, how the the worship was um, conducted. It starts with songs of thanksgiving. Um, there's instruments. It's so loud. It says the, um, that the singing was a joyful celebration, so loud that it could be heard from far away. This is something that was remembered. This is something that's etched in the history. So this was an incredible event. Uh, and this was at a moment where they are celebrating that they have this point where they have their nation back. Uh, and I, th I think that this in itself was really the point at which we can see that those people who experienced that genuine repentance and those people who said, let's lock this into the law so that future generations don't depart and, you know, return to our old ways. But um, to be able to then dedicate themselves and to consecrate themselves um, through this there was this such joy, and you see in this chapter how many times there's a word, you know, with gladness, they rejoiced, there was joy, uh, how much they celebrated at the restoration of their nation, that there was something that was not just momentary and passing, but something that was truly um, locked in. Um, so this is where we leave it. Actually, just as a bit of a, just a segue for Chris, it actually finishes chapter 12 emphasising how important the storehouse was. <laughs> that they didn't just consecrate, uh, you know, themselves and, and the temple and the, the building. They actually consecrated the items that were going to be used in the storehouse for that was going to be used by the priests. Um, and there are gatekeepers that are actually charged with taking care of God's house and his storehouse. Uh, so this is a really central part of the covenant um, to which they're binding themselves in this period of um, restoration. Um, hello everyone, um, and thanks Cecilia. Good evening church. Um, so we're now on to the last chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13, the concluding chapter of the book. I'll just go through a quick overview of the context. I might just reiterate a few things that Cecilia said. Chapter 10, we went through um, when, when the wall was completed, uh, 
And there was a few things that the chapter emphasizes the commitment of the Israelites to uphold God's law and restore their covenant relationship to him. They promise, as Cecilia said, uh, promise them, uh, to separate themselves from foreign influences, observe the Sabbath, support the temple and its service, and provide for the needs of the Levites. Chapter 10 reflects on the Israelites' desire, again, to renew their dedication to God and to reestablish their identity as his people. Um, I'll just end, uh, I'll just reiterate what Cecilia read again. The last verse of chapter 10 goes, we will not neglect the house of God. Then we go on to chapter 11, um, and as um, again Cecilia said primarily with regards to repopulating the city of Jerusalem, which was built, uh, or, or sorry, which was uh, destroyed um, during the time of exile and which was rebuilt. So chapter 11 was primarily focused on the repopulation of Jerusalem. Then we go on to chapter, t uh, that was chapter 11. Then we go on to chapter 12, which highlights um, the celebration and the dedication of the rebuilt wall. Uh, of Jerusalem. It em emphasizes, uh, more importantly, the pra praise and worship and thanksgiving to God. Then we go on to chapter 13. So uh, chapter 13 uh, has two timelines. I'll go, uh, the first three verses is actually the end of uh, chapter 12. Um, so it's at the end of the celebration of building the wall. And then the remaining verses is the period when Nehemiah returns from Jerusalem after a certain duration of time. We don't know how long it is, but we can get some ideas based off uh, verses 23 and 24 that it's been a few years because there was sufficient time for the men of Judah to remarry the, uh, the women um, from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab and have children that could speak. So that gives us an idea of how long it took for Nehemiah to come back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to first go through a summary of chapter 13, and then we're going to focus on some, um, some key points from the first half, uh, which is more with regards to the storehouse. Um, chapter 13 is split into five sections. The first uh, section um, emphasizes a commitment to God. Uh, as I said, it was the um, it was the timelines quite different. This uh, the first three verses was when uh, at the end of um, the celebration of uh, the building of the wall. So the first three verses really highlight uh, the reading of the scripture and the commitment to obey God's commandments, uh, primarily the commandment of purity uh, within the community. Uh, the commitment of the Israelites to exclude all people of foreign descent um, from their community and as an act of obedience of the law. The second section uh, is the expulsion of Tobiah. So when Nehemiah gets back, so um, they've, they've made these commitments of purity and then they've gone uh, and then Nehemiah has gone off back to Persia. On his return from Persia after a number of years, Nehemiah comes back and guess what he discovers? He discovers that Eliashib the priest has provided a room in the storehouse of the temple of, the temple of God. The same Tobiah, who the, Ammonite, uh, the Ammonite who had previously opposed the rebuilding of the Jerusalem walls and was siding with Sabalat and recognizing that this was a violation of uh, God's uh, temple. Nehemiah kicks him out. He throws him out. So that's the second section. He will come back to this because Nehemiah expels Tobiah from the temple and he cleanses the storerooms and then he puts back what those storerooms were purposed for. 
the third section was restoration of support for the Levites and the priests. Nehemiah realizes that the Levites and the priests, while he was away, um, who, the Levites and the priests who were responsible for the service of the temple had been neglected and were not receiving the portion of tithes and offerings due to them. In fact, the Levites and the uh, priests were actually working in the fields, trying to make ends meet. And Nehemiah takes action to reinstate the, their support, ensuring that they are provided for and carry out their duties. Uh, section four, the restoration of the observance of the Sabbath. Again, when he got back, Nehemiah finds that some of the Jews had been engaged in business instead of uh, uh, observing the Sabbath. They were doing commercial activities on the Sabbath, which was a direct violation, again, of the law of God. In response to, Nehemiah, uh, uh, in response to this, Nehemiah confronts them. He closes the city gates on the Sabbath and urges the people to honor the Sabbath. Then the last section, which is the dissolution of mixed marriages, comes back to, that, uh, to the point of holiness that Cecilia mentioned earlier. Nehemiah discovers that the Jewish men who earlier in both uh, uh, in chapters 1 to 3 and in chapters 10 says that they were going to, um, uh, that they were, there was going to be purity in the, in the Israelite community, then go on to marry men from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These ma marriages were prohibited by the law. As the, as, and the main reason for this was um, because uh, Israel's faith and identity was in their community. Nehemiah rebukes those that were involved and makes them swear to put away their foreign wives, uh, emphasizing the importance of maintaining purity in the Israelite community. Overall, Nehemiah 13 showcases Nehem really Nehemiah's dedication to upholding the law and his commitment to um, restoring the religious and moral integrity of Jerusalem, um, and, this, and this summarizes chapter 13. Now let's focus on the first half of the chapter. So we know that, um, um, uh, that um, they really did make a commitment at the early start of uh, 13 to say, look, we're going to honor you, we're going to be pure, we're going to um, obey the law. And then when Nehemiah comes back after a few years, they had diverted and they'd gone back to their old ways. Now, um, let's read Nehemiah chapter 13, 1 to 12. On that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those foreign of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this had happened, Eliashib the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who, also, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storeroom and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles of the temple, and tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which was prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offering for the priests. I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of the reign, though I later asked his permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned that Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. 
I became very upset, threw all of Tobias' belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the room be purified, and I, and I brought back the articles of God's temple, the grain offering, and the fat frankincense. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portion of food, so they had the singers who were to con so they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why was the temple of God neglected? Then I called the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, And once more, all the people of Ju uh, Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil to the temple storerooms. Now, what is the storehouse or storeroom and what was stored in the storehouse? The storehouse is a place where the treasures of service, the w of worship, were stored and cleaned out, and uh, cleaned out by Tobiah the Ammonite. The man who had opposed the work of the Lord and ridiculed and taunted and helped Sanballat lead an uprising against God's work, and now had been given access to the storeroom. Tobiah is not the person that you let into the storehouse. Tobiah is the voice of compromise. Ironically, the name Tobiah actually means Jehovah is good. Tobiah will say all the right things. He's the sort of per person who will get on board with the vision, who will look like he's ready and keen to serve the house of the Lord, but he's driven by his own ambitions. When Eliashib the priest allowed Tobiah into the storehouse, these were the very things that uh, he basically discarded, the very things that he should have held on to. So we, when, when we allow uh, this sort of thing to happen, we discard the things of God because we compromise. So Nehemiah throws Tobiah out of the room in the temple courtyard. Nehemiah cleans out the room and he brings back all the things that were supposed to be in that room. So what were these things that were supposed to be in that room? The first thing is the grain offering. The grain offering represents holiness. In Leviticus 2, when God instituted the grain offering, he said uh, it was one of the holiest offerings. And if we go to verse 10 in Leviticus 2, it says, What is left of the grain offering shall be of Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. So this is considered the most holy part of the burnt offering presented to the Lord. If we want to protect the house, we must never lose our hunger for righteousness and holiness. Yeah. Yeah. Frankincense. giving. So frankincense represents giving and generosity. Frankincense is a resin or a sap. Uh, it was actually a costly uh, resin. Um, it was imported by uh, from Arabia, and there was only a few places. I think it, it could only be made in Arabia and um, Eastern Africa. And a small portion gave... a. A really great fragrance. The, the word frank means free, and I think it comes from the French word, which I looked up, I think Pastor John put it in the notes, and I was like, where did it come from? So, um, and it means free. Uh, this is why uh, the wise men bought uh, a gift of frank incense to show Jesus he was a gift freely given. Generosity protects the house. So the next one is, the next um, item uh, in the storehouse were the temple utensils. The temple utensils played a significant part in religious practices and rituals uh, of the Israelites. And Nehemiah's effort in uh, restoring and maintaining the proper use of these utensils was part of his larger mission to restore the proper worship and obedience to God's commandments. Yes. The temple utensils speak of service to the house. 
as we continue to serve the Lord, let us do it with gladness and, uh, and we can build a house that is protected and loved. The next thing that he put back was new wine and olive, and olive oil. The grain, wine, and olive represent the offerings and provisions required for the sustenance of the Levites, singers, and other temple workers. The grain offering provided sustenance for the Levites and their families. The provision of wine ensured that the Levites and priests had the necessary supplies for their duties, for their rituals prescribed in the law, such as the drink offering. The oil provided light and, uh, light and symbolized the presence of God. The grain and new olive uh, the grain, new wine, and olive oil represents the Holy Spirit. The grain, new wine, and olive oil speaks of sustenance and anointing of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to guide, empower, and equip us yeah. to protect the storehouse. The last thing was portions prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers. The Levites were responsible for the proper function of the temple, ensuring the observance of religious practices according to God's command. The singers played a central role in the temple service, contributing to the atmosphere of worship and leading the people in expressing their devotion to God. The, the gatekeepers helped maintain order and, or, and prevented any un unauthorized or inappropriate activities happening in the church. The portion, the portion belongs to the Levite singers and gatekeepers were the foundation of providing praise and worship. So we start with honoring, and, I, and when I thought through this, I was thinking about our leaders, and I say uh, we honor by giving uh, to our church, and uh, giving is an act of worship, as Cecilia said as well. So, as, so these were the five things that were removed and that were put back into uh, the storehouse. And as I conclude tonight, I'd like to finish on a few thoughts for us as a church community. I think uh, I reflected back on this and I said, look, we've gone through a very similar journey as our church. Not that our church was destroyed, but we've just gone through uh, a, a journey where our church was renovated. We, built, we rebuilt our house of God. Right? And then the church established multiple programs to mature the family of God, such as this tonight. If we can re reflect on some key takeaways from uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, the first thing that I uh, wanted to put out there for us to reflect on is, are we keeping ourselves holy? Are we engaged in the church and volunteering our efforts and time for God? Are we being faithful stewards? and of what God has given us and giving generously to further the kingdom of God. Yeah. Are, we, are we most of all honoring God and keeping him front and center of everything that we do? Are we honoring him with praise and worship? Finally, I'd like this one last thought. I, I'm going through Nehemiah. I just thought, look, what's like as an outcome of uh, the book of Nehemiah and what Cecilia went through and, uh, and what uh, I went through. And I said, the, the, the most important thing that, that's really stood out to me um, was personal accountability. As Nehemiah pleads to God in the last uh, chapter, in chapter 13, he goes, go, uh, he goes, remember me for this God. He says that three times in that, uh, in that chapter. And this reminds us of the imp importance of personal accountability uh, and our desire uh, to leave a positive impact. If we can reflect on our, reflect on our own uh, actions and strive to make choices that are honoring and righteous, seeking to be remembered for acts of integrity and faithfulness to God, just like Nehemiah did.